Chronic Illness Therapist podcast. This is meant to be a place where people with chronic illnesses can come to feel heard, seen, and safe while listening to mental health therapists and other medical professionals talk about the realities of treating difficult conditions. This might be a new concept for you, one in which you never have to worry about someone inferring that it's all in your head. We dive deep into the human side of treating complex medical conditions and help you find professionals that leave you feeling hopeful for the future. I hope you love what you learn here, and please consider leaving a review or sharing this podcast with someone you love. I'm starting a new membership for people who are just kind of looking to learn the basics of acceptance work. Um, What does it mean and what skills can help you lean into acceptance? You know, we talk a lot about acceptance on this podcast and what it is and what it isn't. So I won't repeat that all here, but if you'd like to sign up for this membership, I'm still kind of figuring out exactly what it's going to entail, but I know it will at least have videos, training videos, and a transcription with each video, as well as some worksheets when applicable. Uh, And eventually the goal is to have a community where people can chat with each other and kind of like a Facebook group, but I don't think it'll be on Facebook. I think it'll be on a different platform. So I'll keep you updated on that. If you're interested in learning more about that as I learn more about it and exactly you know what it's going to be, um, then sign up for the email list and I'll, the link will be in the show notes. And yeah, I won't spam you with lots of emails, but just updates about what's going on in the membership and, and what it all entails. So thanks. Mark Flanagan is a licensed clinical social worker and a body psychotherapist practicing in Decatur, Georgia. He emphasizes bodily awareness in working through emotional and relational issues. He holds a master's in anthropology from Georgia State, an MPH and MSW from the University of Georgia, and a bachelor's from the University of Notre Dame. He worked for seven years as the oncology social worker for Piedmont Cancer Center in Fayetteville. During this time, he helped adult cancer patients with barriers to receiving care, and he served as psychological chair for Piedmont's Cancer Committee. He also provided group therapy, mindfulness classes, and yoga classes to the Fayetteville community through Piedmont's Cancer Wellness Program. He continues to provide a free bi-weekly virtual support group through the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. In 2021, Mark opened White Pine Therapy to work more intensively on psychotherapy for individuals struggling with chronic illness, life transitions, and grief. He lives with his wife, Gretchen, and his 12-year-old pit chow mix, Bandit. He enjoys farming, making music, and playing roller hockey. Mark has quite a history. He's worked on urban farms, completed a 1,000 participant study on distress and cancer patients, has participated in yoga teacher training, played solo trumpet in the Notre Dame Jazz Band, and graduated magna cum laude. He's also been published in the Journal of Psychosocial Oncology and Best Practices in Mental Health. So yeah, um, looking over your form, and I don't even know where to start. Like, I'm really impressed uh, with everything that you have accomplished and have worked towards. Um, so maybe we can start with a little bit. Obviously, I, I asked everyone this. Why did you get into this field? Why chronic illness? And we could start there. Sure. Um, first, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. This is a good thing for the community, and, and I appreciate being on here. Um So my journey started and why I wanted to get in this field is really, I've always been interested in health and healing. And early on, I wanted to be a doctor. 
realized in college that might not be the best fit for me. Um, and I became really interested in trying to understand the cultural aspects of health. So I got really deep into cultural anthropology, anthropology of health, and I became really interested in homelessness in America and how that shows up. Um, I did a lot of interviews with homeless individuals who were recovering from substance use disorders. What I found, what came up in a lot of their stories was stress. And that theme permeated kind of throughout my undergraduate and into my first graduate degree, where I came back to Atlanta. And I really wanted to understand how stress really impacts people's day-to-day -day lives, particularly those who are under-resourced. As I kind of went further into anthropology, I realized I wanted to have a more hands-on approach and, and wanted to be able to work therapeutically with individuals. In my interviews with homeless individuals, I really got a connection and I really liked that interaction. Not so much the sitting at home at 2 a.m. writing up things. I, I really liked in, engaging with individuals. And so that's where I decided to pursue a degree in social work and, and really get more training in this field. I still have that interest in health. And so my first, after I got my degree in, in social work and public health, I wanted to work in a hospital setting. So still with that interest in stress, I, I wanted to know or thought about who has the most stress in, in health situations. And of course, there are acute injuries and those sorts of things. But the kind of why I was really love this podcast and really like talking to people who um, have experience or have dealt with chronic illnesses, there's not great uh, approaches to it in Western medicine. So we kind of have painkillers, different things that can acute, that can treat acute symptoms. But I really became interested in working with stress in a healthcare setting to understand how we can work with chronic illnesses differently. And so that my first career, as it were, is working in um, working with uh, with individuals who have cancer, all different kinds of cancer, and trying to figure out how we could a help deal with the practical realities of having that disease, but b also help maybe move towards more meaningful life while having that uh, difficult health experience that they were going through. So that really kind of shaped my experience. And, and a few years ago, I went into private practice because I wanted to even get deeper into that. And so I've started doing groups and, and working with individuals one-on-one -on, -one on, on more of that chronic illness experience. So not just cancer, but all chronic illnesses. And that's a, in a nutshell, kind of how I wound up where I am today. Yeah. It, um, you know, in some of the things that you listed, you know, that, that you have experience in, it's like everything from yoga to um, jazz and uh, working on a farm and um, like you can just tell how much culture and community is important in your life and I imagine that has greatly informed your work so I would love to talk more about that. Yeah so <laughs> I left out a few parts but uh, yeah so I've always been eclectic I've always loved a lot of different things I, I can't really focus on one thing to its exclusion um, so while I was in between um, my first graduate degree, which was in anthropology, and trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life after I kind of written the thesis and like, what am I going to do? Um, I, I did a few years in AmeriCorps working for a local urban farm called Truly Living Well. 
And it was in that process where I really kind of made that transition to social work and, and working with individuals more in kind of an intensive process. So truly living well, um, they're based in Atlanta. Um, but when I joined them, they had this program called the Urban Growers Program. And so what they would do is take under-resourced individuals or they would invite them to come apply to their program to try to learn more practical skills about how to kind of, first of all, have some amount of physical discipline in, in going through the day, but also giving you tangible skills to kind of go out into the world. So that wasn't something that I necessarily planned, but it was something that really impacted me to the point where that's something that I want to bring into my practice that I think nature can be very healing and especially getting back in touch with our bodies can be super affirming, especially if people who are dissociating may have had trauma or different things, gardening or any kind of kind of prolonged physical activity where you can kind of go at your own pace can be really affirming for both the physical body, but also the person who's going through that experience of, I don't have to oscillate between dissociation and extreme touch. I can kind of have these experiences. So I really love like gardening and farming became this really impactful thing for me. And the fact that it has this built-in feature of, <laughs> you know, it's not just a hobby. You also get food at the end of it. Um, brings a lot of metaphors for life. And so um, that along with, uh, you know, being able to engage with people and what they are interested in is something that I, I want to do maybe 10 years from now, have a farm, right, where people can come. So that's, that's kind of my dream. But um, yeah, that, that definitely informs kind of, it kind of shapes, right? So I've always had this interest, I've always wanted to be in a field or it could help people, but I didn't know exactly what that looks like. And so farming, to some extent, music has has helped me kind of fine tune and, and see what it is that that I really enjoy and and can see where I can help others in that in that sphere. Yeah, just the creativity alone that it takes to, I mean, even with something like farming, <clears throat> of course, it can be incredibly, you know, commercialized and rigid, but there's so much creativity as well that goes into, especially on an urban farm and using that part of your brain that's maybe problem solving, but also bringing in, it's not just problem solving, like <clears throat> step one, step two, step three. It's like, we have to really kind of bring together the entire environment to like figure out the answer to whatever problem we're having. And absolutely. And sometimes problems can't be solved from your brain, right? So that that's another way, right? Like, so what I really appreciate about gardening is there are all these metaphors that are just truths. If someone who has chronic illness or someone who's dealing with uh, an extended medical condition, they've probably had hundreds of solutions, either given in good faith or bad faith by friends and family, healthcare providers around. And so it can feel like, well, what the heck's wrong with me? Am I broken? What's going on? Why was I cursed with this? And so for something, I'll just give you a recent example. I just planted a bunch of garlic and I, I wasn't sure if I planted at the right time. You're supposed to plant in fall. That's another, that's for another podcast, right? The farming podcast. But um, right, I wasn't sure if I planted at the right time. I'm not a garlic expert per se, but I put them in the ground, right? And there's really nothing I could do after that. I prepared the ground, put them in the ground. It's cold. There's rain. 
sometimes it goes below freezing. Did I kill my garlics? I don't know. I don't know enough about garlic to know if I killed them or not. I know that I want garlic, but some amount of that is about surrendering to just what is, right? And, and being patient and watching. And sometimes that's what's needed in our lives, chronic illness or other kind of issues. Yes. So, so I am very solution focused. I like to have plans and working with my clients, but sometimes even the best laid plans don't work out. And so the story with my garlic is after a few weeks, I thought for sure they had rotted in the ground. You see a tiny bud poking up, right? I didn't cause that to happen. At the same time, I could have dug it up. Oh, what's going on in here, right? And messed up the whole thing or really got in my head about it, right? And there's some amount of farming, gardening, right? Again, as a metaphor, where we don't have full control over everything. We do have some control over some things, right? Like I could have chosen when to put that in. I could chose whether to, to dig that up. I could have chose whether or not to add, it, add compost or these sorts, right? So those things you can control, but as far as the genetics, the temperature, all these different things that really, provide an environment where growth happens or it doesn't, um, I don't have control over all of that, right? And so coming to some amount of acceptance about that, but also being willing to witness it and be present with it are very big things. So it's, it's not just about gardening. It's about these real central truths that kind of spring up. And that's what struck me. So <laughs> while I should have been, you know, that probably evaluating or doing more kind of, I don't know, administrative work. I, I became this USDA liaison to truly living well. I became really enthralled with just the therapeutic aspects, of just being out there and seeing all these metaphors kind of coming through. And so, you know, whether it be gardening or painting or, or other things like that, I, I really love metaphor as a way or analogy as a way to kind of help people get some teeth in, into kind of their own recovery and, and healing in that process. So, you know, as you were talking, I was like, I had to go back to your form and I ask everybody, what modalities do you use with clients and act as number one? And I'm like, I knew it. You're such an acceptance and commitment. Like everything you're saying is just pure act. Um, but it, it, you know, it, that's obviously, that's my main modality and, um, somatic experiencing and, just yeah being in your body which is so scary when you have a chronic illness we want to do everything to avoid those feelings um I like what you were talking about you mentioned like I could have dug the garlic up like and then when you go into that like fix it mode it can we can we can often do more harm than good sometimes you just have to a lot of times you just have to kind of wait it out and see and live with the ambiguity and live with the uncertainty. Um, and that's just, it, it is, it's a universal truth. We all have to live with that. And when we don't, that rigidity can, can, can cause harm. Absolutely. And I've, I've found that enough in my own life, right? So I, I went through some pretty difficult mental health experiences in college and because of the way I was raised, the, how I developed thinking kind of going on and, and really, um, you know, kind of getting inside my own head. I was, I've always been kind of a bookworm academic. And uh, I remember a professor told me one time while I was trying to kind of work some things out or writing stuff a lot. He's like, you can't think your way out of this problem. 
there's, there's no amount of thinking that you can do that will solve what it is that you're trying to solve. In other words, this is something that needs to be lived or experienced. And over time, the answer will come. That's not an easy lesson, especially for us <laughs> in America, right? We, we, right. And, and I appreciate that because a lot of people that come in, right, who are dealing with a chronic illness, who I, I'm talking to, it's not like they're just, so again, it depends, chronic illness is a broad term, but a lot of them aren't just sitting around, right? A lot of them put a lot of pressure on themselves. There's, I don't know what, I don't know if that's true or not. There's a high correlation between chronic illness and type A personalities, right? At least I find that, right? Where there's a lot of guilt put on the self of why can't I figure this out? Why am I not better, right? And so through my own mental health experience and trying to get better, fix things and right, there needs to be that ability to move back and forth between those spaces. Yes, you need to take purposeful action, but you don't need to act all the time. Sometimes you need to sit and reflect. So it's this iterative process of being, of being in our bodies, of being in this space, but then also taking that, whatever it is that you've gained from just being present and then moving forward with a lot of that energy that is, that's not infinite. We don't have an infinite amount of energy. Um, I think my wife's uncle called them life coins, right? We have a certain amount of life coins we can spend each day. We don't have an infinite amount. You can't, like, once you're out of that, your, your effectiveness and your ability to kind of work through issues in life drastically diminishes. And so a lot of my work with chronic illness patients, it's not about solving a chronic illness, because I tell them I'm not an expert in your illness. I, I certainly am not. I'm not even an expert in your experience. You are, right? But what I can say is that if you slow down a bit, right, and we prioritize calming your central nervous system, we then have the opportunity to act with purpose, right? And so if, if you're struggling to get something done, if you're struggling to move forward in life, how do you start? Right. So a lot of people with chronic illness come in and say, I got this, I got that, I got this, I got a relationship, fix it. Okay. Right. We've got to start somewhere. Right. And often that somewhere starts with a step. Right. And so I mentioned I practice solution focused therapy. One of my favorite questions is what's the smallest step that you can imagine that can move you in that right? Right. And so just really breaking it real might. Okay. Uh, well, I can, uh, start writing an email, right? Or I can get up at a certain time or I can drink half a glass of water. It gives you somewhere to start. You need to have some sort of traction, right? And if that's all that you can do for that hour, that day, that's okay. We have somewhere, we have something that you've done that you haven't done before. And so building on top of that really becomes that source of motivation. How do you motivate someone who has overwhelmed with things that are going on? Well, certainly I can't wizard that into their head, right? Or I can't wish it out of the sky. Motivation comes from, the, from seeing success. What is success? Success comes from goals that are accomplished. Not big goals, any goals. So it matters breaking those goals down to very, very small. So if someone says they want to do something, I say do half of that. When I'm starting off someone on meditation or starting meditation, right? What I say is, I don't care how long you do it. It's more about the consistency. If you can do a minute a day, 
that's great because it's at the end of the week, you'll have done seven more minutes than you've done before. And so the next week, maybe two minutes. So it's about breaking that down, breaking it real down to those, those bite-sized pieces because you're absolutely right. You can get a chronic pain flare-up. You can get this sort of thing where I have clients say, oh, all this work is just thrown out. I had this chronic pain flare-up and I started having all these negative thoughts. Okay, well, you're still here. You're still showing up, right? And so balancing that, bringing those things back and really allowing someone to take uh, hold of what it is that they care about, the things that are important in their life becomes the work of therapy, right? So it's not about healing that chronic illness. It's about engaging those inner resources in a way that's meaningful to that client. And I'm sure you know that, right? As, as an right. act therapist. I right? love that you're, you're explaining it so succinctly and it's just, it's so good for people to hear. My thought, my thoughts that are coming up are like, I was one of those people that um, the small steps just weren't um, big enough or they weren't uh, rewarding enough for it to be motivating enough for it to like, for me to keep going. It, it was, there was always something at the end of like, yeah, but okay. So I started the email, but like, it doesn't matter. There wasn't enough. So for me, it was leaning into, I think, I think my, so in, in ACT, we have people who don't know, like six core processes and um, mindfulness is one of them. Uh, yourself as context, like kind of the noticing part of you, the part that notices things um, and, and values. Values was probably, that was probably the biggest thing for me, acceptance and values. Um, <clears throat> and so it was, it was the, if I couldn't accomplish the whole goal, none of it mattered. But when I took away goals, when I took goals out of it and I was like, okay, but my, I have a value in life to be, um, okay, health, health is a value of mine. One, it's like defining what health means, right? Like I have a chronic illness. I have chronic pain. Being pain-free is not what defines health for me, but moving my body every day, drinking enough water, like things that a lot of us just don't, we don't do. Um, those things were val that was a value of mine it, it, to live in a way that was always doing something good for my body even if, and so like, I guess I was able to let go of the perfectionism in that way. Like it, it was enough for me to just do the one thing when there wasn't an end goal in sight. If there was like this huge goal at the end, I, it was just too overwhelming to kind of think about getting there bite by bite by bite. It was more so, okay, well, if there's no goal, then how do I want to live and show up every day? And yeah. I think that's very powerful. And uh you know, I think it's, it's that hexaflex, right? <laughs> Dancing around that hexaflex. Yeah. And to be clear, those small goals doesn't work for everyone. Right. And, and that's where values can be, be very, very powerful. Um, and values are those things that, right. Even if we have very little agency. So I didn't really go into as deeply why I wanted to work with homeless individuals. So in undergrad at Notre Dame, there are a lot of people and God bless them who wanted to travel overseas to do mission work. And I think that's great. I see a lot of pain and, and, and poverty in our own country that is often overlooked or, or not looked to. And so one of the things that I wanted to understand is how do people with 
relatively little resources, right? The ability to set goals or even have some sort of semblance of non-paying day. The other thing we found is homelessness is very, very painful from the cold to the injuries you have from sleeping rough. How do those people make change? How do individuals in those settings make change? Um, How do those with very low, what we might say, agency or the ability to make change, make change? And one of the things that came out of my research, as well as just my lived experience, is that anyone, everyone, no matter who you are, if you're breathing, there's more right with you than wrong with you. And my social science brain was searching for answers of how people recovered in this um, impoverished social context, right? Was it programs? Were it a group of do-gooders? Was it this context or universities coming in? What social? And I didn't find that. I found that people had to make that choice, right? And and it's not as simple as just pull yourself up by the bootstraps because that's not what I found either. But Sherry Ortner, who is this, who I based a lot of my thesis work on, she talks about social power and, and how we have power within society and different structures. And what she said is that agency... Um, What it means for people, people to have agency is that no matter what your station is in society, no matter how low you are, you still have some form of agency. In other words, even people who you might see as having terrible things put upon them and don't have a lot of resources still have that ability to make change. And if you take that away from them, that's not being respectful to them as individuals. Case in point, a lot of the people who chose recovery did so, what they were saying, of their own accord. Now, there had to be people willing to show up for them or have services, that sort of thing. But they didn't have to, right? And they didn't have to go in that space. And so, right, homeless individuals who are struggling with drug addiction, it's not quite the same thing as individuals who might come from middle class society or struggling with chronic illness, but there's a lesson there, I think, right? So my my mom got me this this book for Christmas called The Daily Stoic. (laughs) So Stoic philosophy has influenced a lot of of my work as well. And so these these powerful quotes kind of came through. And and one of them that really stuck with me is, you can bind up my leg, but not even Zeus has the power to break my freedom of choice, Epictetus, right? So... (laughs) It's a little dated, right? Referencing Zeus. But the idea is that even if you're in this really, and and I've worked with some individuals who couldn't even sit through a call, they're in so much pain. They still can make choice, right? They still could, there's, right, you can't take that fully away from them. It's not about, yeah, I think when we get into this conversation about choice, like people hear it's your choice whether you succeed at something or not. And the conversation is not about making a choice to succeed at this end goal. It's more so just using your ability to make a choice to take the next best step just in your life in in general. Not about like, if you can't accomplish this, it's because you didn't make the right choices. It's, It's just, it's that autonomy that we're talking about to just be able to make a decision. Absolutely. I'll give you another example. Um, 
stage four pancreatic cancer, if someone's diagnosed with that, it's, it's very like, right. Most cancers, we might say, oh, well, there's pretty good chance. Pancreatic cancer is one of those that's in the very extreme categories. Not always, not always. If you get diagnosed with that, that's very close to, to some type of life-limiting illness. You're not going to be around for a long time, or at least that's what statistics say. So somebody gets diagnosed with that. As I worked with a lot of I still work with a lot of individuals who are in stage four illness. They have every right to be upset at the world, at their circumstances. And I can't say boo to that. And so I tell that to them. You can be as upset as you want. No one will say anything to you, least of all family members or anyone. But I'll tell you, objectively, you don't have to go through this illness that way. Why do I say that? I say that because of people who have touched my life, who have taught me things that I was not expecting. So I was working with someone when I was at the cancer center, Piedmont Cancer Center, and every time I would go in, she'd just be happy. She'd just be joy. Hey, oh, hey Mark, how's it going? Right? This, this sort of thing. I worked with her for years. So she was a volunteer at Cancer Wellness and, and kind of going through like... It wasn't till a few years in my job that I learned that she had stage four pancreatic cancer. This was after she taught me how to make kombucha. This is after she taught me how to play hand drum and do different things with my point is that, and even in the, when, when she was, when things started declining for her, she was actively showing nurses how she would drain her pleurex catheter. And for those of you who don't know, pleurex catheters, when fluid builds up in your diaphragm or your lungs area, right? You need a catheter that goes in there that drains that fluid. That's not a pleasant experience, but this person was using it as a teaching experience, right? Now this is a little, this, I don't know what her constitution in life was, right? And I'm not saying everyone needs to be like that. My point is that I've seen these things and I've seen individuals go through life uh, and go through illness experiences with very different attitudes. So, yeah. Yeah. What comes, what comes up for me is like, she, of course, I don't know this woman at all, but I would imagine that she was living a life in accordance with her values. So if she genuinely loved teaching, she genuinely loved the things that she was doing. She made choices every day to do the things that bring, bring her joy. And I'm sure she was not this smiling, happy person 24 seven, you know, 24 seven, I'm sure she had her moments, but the, the point is not somewhere, like you said, it's not that everyone should be how she was. It's that everyone should be making choices that is in the direction of their values. What is going to bring a little bit more joy into your life? Maybe it's quitting your job at the end of your life. Maybe it's spending more time with certain family members and spending a lot less time with other family members. Um, so that's what comes up for me as you were talking about that. Absolutely. And the fact that you have choice, right? Not maybe the full range of choice. We're all limited in choice. I would love to fly. I think about flying a lot. Um, there's also some dangers and risk involved in that. We have limitations for what we can do. That's kind of a silly example, but right individuals who might want to, this is what I hear with chronic pain. I'd love to just walk around my neighborhood, right? Well, and if we talk about solution-focused work, well, what would an ideal life look like? Well, if I could walk around my neighborhood, okay. 
right? And that's where we need to go back to that hexaflex. What are the limitations on what you can and cannot do? And you're absolutely right that this does not preclude that life is painful or, or that you'll experience sadness. It's not at all, right? It's not some kind of magical shield against all the negativity in the world. Far from it. It's about looking at that negativity, looking at the challenges very soberly and saying, I'm moving ahead regardless. Which comes with, you know, this is like the awareness piece, being willing to feel those difficult feelings and then support yourself through them. Not so much like, okay, I feel this way, but I'm going to pretend I don't and push through. That's a really good recipe for resentment and fatigue and burnout. But um, more so along the lines of, uh, so I, I this is like my newest kind of term I'm venturing into is supporting yourself. It's a very kind of somatic experiencing concept. But um, when you're sad, what do you do to support yourself through that? Which does not mean do it on your own. It just means when you're sad, sometimes you actually need to set bigger boundaries and, and have more space, more alone time from friends and family. When you're sad, sometimes you need more um, conversations. You need to reach out more. It was like, it was years ago, this was years ago, sometime in undergrad. And I remember it was like a day after just like crying and crying. And, and it was like one of those intense kind of crying spells where all my clients are like, I don't want to feel my feelings because the floodgates are going to open. And that's going to, I'm like, yep, I know, been there. <laughs> Um, and I remember it was so simple, but I like, it gets to the end of the day. I'm like, I didn't drink like any water today. And I just started, I'm like, I've been crying out all of my salt and tears like all day and I have not replenished at all. And so I drank a glass of water. And then after that, it was like, okay, every time I need to feel my feelings and it's going to be a floodgate kind of day, I need to have water at the start of it. And that was like one of the first things I started to do to take care of my emotions and um, support myself through that. It's, it sounds so simple, but it was really powerful. So powerful, right? And it's, it's one of those things where water doesn't care how you feel, right? You either have water, or you don't, right? So you can choose to be dehydrated, right? Or even not even be aware of that, right? And again, probably water didn't fix everything that was going on but it allowed you maybe a softer pad to land on when those challenging emotions came up. Exactly. Um, but that's the same thing for me. So I, I know that um, when I'm in a really bad mood, when I have, when I can't quite understand why, um, and when I check in with my body, it usually feels numb. It's usually, I haven't been checking in with my body right? There's something going on. Um, likewise, when I'm in a lot of pain, right? I start feeling down. So to me, just kind of working through my own mental health issues, going through major depression, coming out of that, trying to have kind of some semblance of normalcy moving forward. I learned for myself the importance of those two things connecting. A lot of times when I, I tell clients, right? Um, so I use Maslow's hierarchy of needs, not necessarily like it's the best model, but it kind of gets the point across. If you're, if you, if you're hungry and thirsty and you haven't slept, how the heck are you going to talk about your relationships, right? Like just not. It's the same thing. Like if, if kids are showing up to class and they're 
starving, right? How are they going to focus or study? So just pairing it back, right? Because we can amp ourselves up. We can create nightmare scenarios in our brain. But, you know, if I can just get a little more water in my body, maybe that, that can just cool things down a bit. It's not going to fix everything, but I think that's a lot of wisdom, which you're talking about coming through. It gives you just a little bit of reprieve so that you actually can then make the next best choice. I'm curious, um, I use Maslow's hierarchy too. Again, it's not prescriptive. It's just, it's a really good way to get across like exactly what you just said. How did you address that? Or um, how did you interact with that concept when you were working with homeless people? Oh, that's challenging um, because for most individuals who are still on the streets, who, that is who aren't in some kind of transitional facility, um, those needs are just not met at all. And so what you have is a supplementation of those needs. That's a lot of times, whether drug or substance use kind of spiraled out of control and wound someone on the streets or someone got on the streets for a variety of reasons, abuse, medical bills, there's a wide variety of, of issues that could wind someone on the streets. When you're on the streets, that's an intrinsically painful experience, both physically and emotionally. So, you know, to me, it's almost like, um, and, and a lot of individuals would say this, that, um, you know, until they started getting some kind of assistance from somebody or somebody reached out to them, it was hard for them to even understand why they should recover or, or what should even be moving mm -hmm. in that direction. Um, so that is core, right? Like, I don't, I don't know if you can have some, any amount of sustainability without that. And so while choice is important, while moving in that direction is, is important, if you don't have resources, it's really hard to sustain that. So those are insights that I kind of, you know, use with a lot of, uh, individuals and clients that I work with now is that, if you're not taking care, okay, you didn't sleep at all last night, we shouldn't even meet today, right? What are you, you going to remember? Oh, you haven't eaten at all for the entire day? How are you going to focus, right? So let's, let's step back, right? Maybe a lot of people think therapy is like getting your feelings. You sit on a couch, talk about your mom and your dad. I don't necessarily see that. I see it as working up those right in a in a rough way working up those hierarchy of needs if you can take care of yourself if you right be surprised about what a regular bedtime can do for people if you can get to sleep or just get it for some of my clients i said if you can learn how to breathe right slow down your breathing you can learn how to drink water you know maybe get rid of sugary beverages or things like that you're doing a lot better than most americans <laughs> So, right, it's about giving yourself credit, not getting too far ahead. So when I was working with homeless individuals, you know, um, I always made sure that wherever we were, however we were working, you're not in discomfort. There's something going on that you have something to drink, you have something to eat, right? And even when I see homeless people on the streets today, it's not, I would like to help more. I would like to show up more. But even just saying hello, right, can can kind of mitigate some of that social isolation. So those are some of the insights that, that I took with and, and also still try to apply as much as I can.
Yeah. Really and you might not have the answer to this because I'm not sure what, what all the scope was of the work you did, but um, is there anything that you gleaned about community within the unhoused and how they interact with each other and how they support one another and even like viewing Maslow's hierarchy of needs like solely in the homeless community. And it's yeah. okay who can't speak to that. So community isn't universally good. Community can be um, really toxic too. I mean, if you talk to anyone who's been in a dysfunctional family or have had abuse happen, it doesn't mean that more people is always better. Um, now, in, in a lot of cases, there are supportive communities with, that exist within in the unhoused homeless communities. Um, but I also came a lot of stories of trauma, abuse, and neglect perp perpetrated by predators in that community. That's not the only story, but we have to be also so that I mean, to me, that's instructive of we need to be mindful of who it is we're choosing to be around us, right? Why are we doing that? Because community and family, um, they can be powerful supporters for good and feeling connected, right? Is what's in my mind, what's most important. A lot of individuals that I work with, and even on the streets would say that um, there's kind of this sense of alienation or enemy, right? The separation from ourselves, from our productive work, from the things that are around us. And the solution isn't necessarily just put in a bunch of people, right? It's finding people that can connect with you or even trying to connect with yourself, right? So I'm thinking of internal family systems. You have a community within you. You have these things. Um, individual, some individuals that I work with, um, they're lamenting, or uh, there's a frequent kind of complaint about, well, if I only had a partner, or if I only had more friends that understood, if I only had this and right, and so, sure, right, we can maybe take that at at some face value. If you had someone here who could help take out the garbage, that is easier. What if that person also was cheating on you and would sling verbal abuse at you. Now, that seems like a net negative, right? And if half of our marriages end in divorce, to me, the answer to loneliness is not other people, right? It's about connecting really with our values and the things that we care about. So taking it back to the homeless community, it's really what's important to you, right? getting a place to, to sleep, right? Having food, but then beyond that, right? Because so much of home, of, you know, working with homeless individuals is about meeting those basic needs. But what else? What else? So I, I used to work, unfortunately, it shut down. I was on Ponce de Leon called the Open Door Community. And I, a few times a month, they would have this kitchen where homeless people could come in and they could order what they wanted, right? So it's this radical idea that no matter who you are, your values and what you care about is still important, right? And so that radical 
love that was shown by open door community and the people that are working there. Um, it's mutually affirming because when you show more respect to others, you're also showing respect to yourself. Right. And so when you're, when you're asking people, what do you want? Right. Rather than take this, be happy with it. There's a humanization process that happens there. So as far as community, right. To me, it's, it's a little more nuanced or it's a little more, um, there's some, some more layers there. Cause I don't think just sticking someone in a bunch of people, they'll be happy. Right. Like, um, I don't know, some kind of osmosis, right? It matters who those people are and it matters how those relationships form and, and what they're doing to that person. Yeah, I guess like the idea, going back to the ideas around choice and values and it's about knowing yourself so that you can, again, know where you wanna, even within that, say, you know, you have a bunch of people in a room, well, who do you gravitate toward and why? Is it habitual because it's, you know, this person is, kind of they look safe because they're not going to judge you because they are kind of doing the same things that you're doing that maybe you're trying to change um and if so it's like it's a, it's getting comfortable with feeling a little bit unsafe so that you can find safety elsewhere that's a bit probably a whole other podcast we can expand into but um i think this is the crux of like an acceptance and commitment therapy it's so funny. When I was an undergrad learning about ACT, um, there was some teacher that was like, I don't think even master's level students should practice ACT. And I remember being so, so like hurt by it. <laughs> I was just like, how dare you say that? Like, I'm, we're smart. Like we can figure this out and we can. Um, but the more I've been in the world of ACT, I just realized how difficult, because there's so many, you know, the hexaflex, there's six different things that all interconnect and, and, sometimes it is really hard to speak about an act concept without it sounding a certain way. You really do need like full podcast episodes to explain all the nuances that come along with acceptance and commitment therapy. It's not just about accepting things as they are. It's not just about taking action and no matter, regardless of anything else, it's like, no, all of these things are interconnected just as we are as humans, just as our bodies are as, as people and as chronically ill people, um, everything is interconnected. And that's why things, you mentioned slowing down earlier and we didn't really expand on that, but that's kind of another one of my big soapboxes is just slowing everything down because there is so much nuance in every conversation, every thought, every belief, every desire. And when we slow down, we get to explore all the corners of each of those things. So when you live with a chronic illness, everything can feel so foggy and confusing. Um, there's <clears throat> so many different specialists and different people telling you X, Y, and Z. It's very hard to know yourself when you live with a chronic illness or living unhoused because there's, there's all these other things that are clouding your ability to know yourself. So I think the conversation just around choice and acceptance you know it really does it always it always leans leans into privileged territory and I think it is a privilege to be able to know yourself I mean it's time that you I don't know yeah it, it's, it's a privilege absolutely and you know it I, I totally resonate with what you're saying if you're not careful right it can it can kind of seem like this panacea right oh just do this everything's fixed or just look on the brighter side of the 
of the street, right? Things will be okay. Um, and I think the truth of it is a, is a lot more profound and, and challenging, right? Um, and when I was starting out in as a baby oncology social worker, I first I was kind of overwhelmed with going from being an intern to to running an entire department. Um, but then seeing just suffering that either you haven't experienced directly or you don't quite know what that's like. Um, and so tr searching for things to say, what's the best thing to say in this scenario? How, how can I show up? And one of the things that I heard over and over again is I just, <laughs> I can't hear my friends and family say it's going to be all right anymore. Because for me, it's not all right. And absolutely talking about knowing yourself or going on some kind of monastic retreat or right having these ideas where I can just sit back and understand my everything and slow things down to me what's more important is being present to whatever ability that you can because all these things that we're talking about right what kind of community do I like where do I want to go what's my pain how is it showing up in my body even the description of pain that has this connotation of this negative thing rather than intense sensation, right? And so to me, slowing down or ministering or being present is maybe a, a better way of talking about that. I, I remember this one individual who was a little bit younger than me who came in he had stage four lung cancer and he showed me a photo on his phone and uh, I couldn't recognize it. I wasn't sure what he was showing me. And he said, those are all lesions. Those are all tumors. And it looked like a, a cheetah spots all over his lung. And I honestly had, I, I had no idea what to say. What could I say that could comfort this individual who's younger than me, but will be dying imminently. And all I could say is I'm so sorry. That is awful. And being present, uh, just experiencing that with him is maybe the only thing I could have offered him. Right? I couldn't say, oh, uh, here's here's some uh, meditation guides, right? Or uh, drink three glasses of water. <laughs> what? Um, right? So sometimes things can't be fixed. And then, but the, you, yeah, yeah, you still we, have a choice how to show up and yeah, and connect. I think you know, we, like you're saying, not all community is healthy or good or great, but um, human connection, though, in times of turmoil, connection where it's <clears throat> no one is trying to fix you and is they're just saying, like, I'm not experiencing the pain that you are, but also I am because I'm in this circle with you. So, like, I'm gonna sit here and I'm gonna feel it with you as if it's mine. and a lot of people just don't have the capacity to hold on to their own pain, let alone someone else's. So I think this is an important part of the conversation because, you know, one thing that always comes up, is like, 
my family doesn't understand. And, you know, it just feels like I'm a burden or I'm complaining all the time. And it's like, if your family is making you feel that way, it is very likely, you know, there's always parts of our own perception and how we perceive it. But then there's a lot of times just the plain, simple truth that they cannot handle pain. And they have a choice in that choices and they they do not have to um different than how we've been using it the rest of this podcast but if they don't have chronic pain or chronic illness then they don't have to experience that and you on the other hand do you have to experience that pain um now we have choice within that pain but so it feels yeah there's a lot of things that um can feel really unfair but to have so when we're talking about connecting sometimes yeah, again, it's not about connecting with the people who are around you, but it's connecting with yourself enough to know what you do and don't want out of your relationships. Absolutely. And that's, uh, you know, that I hear that time and I hear that time and time again, right? They just don't understand what I'm going through or the things that are happening. They don't, it's like, they don't want to engage with it. They don't want to be with it. They probably don't. They're probably some amount of I wish my son, daughter, uncle, relative is not experiencing this. And by the way, that brings up my own mortality <laughs> and difficult issues, right? They may not even be aware of that, that that's happening, right? Yeah. But that's kind of what they're saying. It's like that stuff is icky. Right. I don't want to get into that because that the ick might get on me, right? They might not be saying that, but yeah. Yeah, that's usually what's happening. And, and they don't have the words for that a lot of times. So we just sit there as the chronically pain illness person. We sit there like, oh, either it's like all my fault or like it's everyone else's fault. And there's not a lot of flexibility or um, ability to like see the gray. It's like this all or nothing. And one other thing I want to say about choice um, and like making decisions is that especially if you grew up in a family where you were expected one for one reason or another to figure it all out on your own and be independent sooner than you maybe had should have had to be um to make appropriate decisions for you or to know yourself really requires seeing that modeled elsewhere and to have somebody else kind of be able to hold you while you're making all of these mistakes as a young child like you should be making a ton of mistakes as a young child like when you <laughs> if you see a kid learn to walk they fall a hundred times and we clap for them. We always clap when a baby falls. At some point, we stop clapping when people make mistakes and we start saying, you should have done better. You should have known better. So a lot of us grew up with those messages, um, which means that if just making a choice, trying to make a choice and where there might be a failure in that is inherently unsafe. So it's important to note so there's that part of it. And then it's also important to know that um, even in this day and age, now I think kids are given a little bit too much choice, too young. Their little tiny brains are just craving for someone to say like, well, can you show me how first and then let me make a decision? <laughs> and, um, but they of course don't have the words for that. So I think that's going to cause a lot of issues in the future too, with people who don't know how to make choices at all. Um, because there was no, no one taught them the parameters of how to make a choice it was just you're your own free person do choose whatever you want and it's like that tiny brain is like I, how like where do i start i just don't even know so choice is um in order to make choice we have to 
feel safe in our bodies or be okay with not feeling safe. Like there's an okayness of like, okay, I'm going to make this choice. And like, it might be wrong and I'll be okay. Or I might not be okay for a little while, but that's okay too. It's pure, pure radical acceptance. Absolutely. And you know, that paralyzing nature of too much choice, right? I'm very familiar with that. And absolutely, right? Too much choice or providing too much kind of leeway in that space. Oh, whatever you want, right? It may not be of best service to to our young ones. Um, you know, and you're right that that oscillating between having all this choice and then if you mess up you're there's self-criticism and other people are critiquing you a lot of a lot of in these techniques we're talking about therapy these sorts of things the attitude with which we approach some of this is really important too i asked someone you know if someone's talking about their self-criticism or self-talk i asked them to say some of that stuff out loud and then i say would you ever say that to anyone in your life no no way why why because you think you can take it more right? Because, oh, because you're saying it to yourself and it's silent, it means less, or you're somehow an exception. So to me, that's not having a lot of compassion for oneself. And there's this um, type of prayer, it exists in a lot of different traditions, um, but we might call it a loving kindness meditation. And that loving kindness meditation, or metta, it always starts with yourself. It always starts with generating love for yourself. And then it ends with generating love for everything in the universe. But you can't start that without yourself. And some people don't even know what, when it's so I brought up the concept of self-love or, right? What does that even mean? <laughs> I don't even, no one's talked to me about that. I don't, I wouldn't grow up in a family with self-love. Another way you could describe that is self-care. What are you doing to take care of yourself? Are you drinking that water? Right. And so if you would allow someone else to have mistakes or have some compassion for that, you deserve at least that much for yourself. Because if you view yourself as a person, you need to treat that person with love and respect too. So a lot of times I try to get someone to get outside of themselves a little bit, view themselves as a separate person hopefully not go through some dissociative process in that, but just to view themselves as uh, an other, right? If you can view yourself as an other, is that easier to give love than it is to yourself? Do you care about other people in your life? Of course I do. Why don't you have that same care towards yourself, right? And so one of the things that I think can bridge some of this is, is having some amount of compassion. We're not gonna always show up fully for ourselves or for other people in our life for that matter. But are we trying? Are we are we moving in the right direction? Are there some aspects to what we're doing where we can find benefit or or healing in that, right? And and giving ourselves some grace, right? My um, one of my niece's name is Grace, and I love that name because it's it's first of all it it embodies this kind of kind of element that's outside of a lot of humanity. Right? We don't have that ability. But it also provides this right life, we can treat it a little bit softer than maybe some of these hard edges that we define of success and failure. 
And so if we can work with that experience, right, rather than try to solve ourselves or to try to put the fit this piece in that's not fitting, maybe that answer, we can live our way into it. Maybe. Yeah, I probably asked almost every one of my clients to just have some more grace with themselves. I love that word. <laughs> it just, it kind of embodies um, that little bit of space that you need to just be able to like take a breather from all of the self-criticism that pops up. And it's like, can you just have a little bit of grace? I just don't think any other word quite grasps that concept. Um, and I will say, I think, um, I have a bit of a, a different like thought on, I find that the people who are super, super self-critical, while they might not ever say that thing out loud to someone else, often are thinking those super critical things about other people too, because there's overall a lack of ability for flexibility, for mistakes. Again, for some reason or another, mistakes were deemed dangerous in childhood, whether it was because emotional like love was taken away when you made a mistake or hypercriticism or and so you you it's really difficult I think to have um any bit of patience for your own mistakes or for others and when you start to learn I I really think it can it can work either way I, I think you can learn to quote love yourself first or quote to learn learn to love others first and in that you learn how to have some more grace for yourself but um I think it's I don't think I think both happen together kind of bi-directionally. Absolutely. Uh, one of the ways, so I'm working with a few clients on forgiveness for a variety of, of, a variety of things, but empathy, right? And having empathy for others can also allow that to seep in for ourselves too, right? Um, so I, I believe in that bi-directionality as well. I think that's, that's a great, great point. Yeah. I think nature helps us understand that too, to kind of just tie it back real quick, but there's nothing you can do to your, like your soil that will not impact your plants. And there's nothing you can do to your plants that won't impact your soil. So we have a lot to learn from nature. You should come over and plant sometime. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> will you teach me? I swear I've been learning, <laughs> wanting to learn how to plant for, I know way more about it. And I've probably never dug my hand into soil because I read and I don't do when it comes to planting. <laughs> yeah, it could start small. It'll be a party. It'll be fun. <laughs> that sounds amazing. Awesome. Is there anything you want to leave people with today um, that kind of just helps them have some compassion for themselves or um, make choices in a way that's, again, just kind of well-rounded and um, graceful. I would say that no matter where you are, whatever it is that you're dealing with, there is hope for something. May not be hope for a cure. May not be hope that everything goes back to the way that it was, but there can be hope for perhaps lessening of symptoms. There can be hope for what it is that's tomorrow. There can be hope eternally for things to be different. Even if individuals are in later stages of life or have a life-limiting illness, there can be a hope for a meaningful end. And to me, whatever it is that we're going through as I said before, as long as you're breathing, there's hope. There's 
there's that ability, even if you don't see it, right? Because hope doesn't, it isn't emotion. It's just the idea that there's a possibility that things could change. And if you think that, then there's something to work with. And I would say start there. So wherever that is, start there. You're not comparing, right? And the other thing that I would say is stay the heck off social media unless you're uh, right trying to find a job on LinkedIn or doing these <laughs> sorts of things. I would say stay off, stay off. What I mean by that is don't compare yourself to the outsides of others. Don't compare your inside to the outside of others. You're doing like just that. fine where you're at. And even if that place is not great right now, all that we can compare that to is where you were yesterday. And to me, that's much more meaningful, much more important than what people that you may talk to tangentially pictures or posts. <laughs> Stay on social media yeah. and start small. Start where it is that you are. And, yeah. and there can be hope there. And I think um, the last thing I'll, I'd like to add to that <laughs> is um, basically if you aren't doing as good today as you were yesterday, um, things are cyclical. Nature will teach you this too. Things do not happen linearly. So we're not necessarily comparing, you know, and trying to always be better, always be better. Um, sometimes you're going to be a little worse and that's a, that's just a part of the process of growing. So um, yeah, I, I thank you so much for everything that you talked Absolutely. about today. I think this was a really great conversation. I'm excited to put it out there. I appreciate that, Destiny. I appreciate you uh, for hosting this. This has been great. It's been a lot of fun for me. Awesome. So thank you. If you learned something new today, consider writing it down in your phone notes or journal and make that new neural pathway light up. Better yet, I'd love to hear from you. Send me a DM on Instagram, email me, or leave a voice memo for us to play on the next show. The way you summarize your takeaways can be the perfect little soundbite that someone else might need in order to better absorb the same lesson. Lastly, leaving a review really helps others find this podcast, so please do so if you found this episode helpful.